Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast, where we learn from the smartest people in the world. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnall, a physio from Australia with more than 15 years of calisthenics experience. Paul Twyman is a 46-year-old husband and father of six kids. His journey started later in life as an adult, overcoming poor flexibility and gaining bodyweight strength against the odds. Learn how to best use your time when learning handstands, calisthenics skills, and much more. Paul, could you please share your story of how you got started into this world of calisthenics, handstands, and flexibility? Um, So I was a... Uh, in 2013, uh, I was a corrective exercise coach. Um, I studied with Paul Czech um, and was a, a level two Czech practitioner. So I was doing like corrective exercise and things. Um, personally, for my training, I'd come back, come from like a bodybuilding, you know, just a standard globo gym type thing. Um, I saw two or three months before that, I'd played around with some CrossFit as well. Loved the idea of CrossFit um, and, and played with that a little bit. Um, and then I just saw a picture of Ido Portel in a diamond one-arm handstand. Uh, and I was like, I need to do that. And I could hold like a, I think my best was like an eight to 10 second handstand walking around on my hands. I'd sort of always been able to do that from, from a child, um, but never really explored it, but would just play with the kids and you know be able to go upside down on my hands. Uh, but not with, with no real control. But this picture of this one-arm handstand um, was like, I want that. I'm gonna. I want to achieve that. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna just do a handstand every day and um, make myself accountable because I want to get this one-arm handstand. It was only gonna take 30 days or something. I thought if I practice it every day, it's simple. Just throw the hand up in the air. Um, so I started started training towards the handstand by literally doing one handstand a day and posting it to Instagram. So I made myself a challenge, handstand 365, I'm gonna do a handstand every day, keep myself accountable, and that way I'm gonna get this one-arm handstand. Um, this picture of Edo in a, in a one-arm handstand was actually an advert for him coming to Perth. So um, I, I went back to this advert, read it, looked into who's this Edo guy, obviously watched his couple of his YouTube videos and that was it. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to learn this. This is the key. This is the key to the one arm handstand. This guy's going to teach me booked into his workshop. And obviously you know, go into, have you been to any of Edo's workshops? I have. Yeah. I went to one in 2012. When did you go? Uh, so well, it was 2000, December, 2013. Okay. And just so people listening know what age were you when you started this journey of handstands? 37. Okay, so then you go to this Udo Portal workshop. Uh, it was it was amazing. Obviously, suddenly there was this uh, gymnastic strength um, way of movement. Um, that was the the key things that I took away from the workshop was the gymnastic rings. So what you could basically the, they opened up this whole new um, type of training that I'd never really seen before. That was um, you know. It was a gymnast thing. It was something that um, you didn't do. No, no one was doing this in the gym. I didn't see anyone training on rings and things. Um, so that was amazing. And then just the control of the body that Edo obviously shows. And Odelia was there and was just blown away by this new way of training. Um, so uh, at the end of the workshop, Edo does this thing where he sits everyone down and people ask about online coaching and how can we work with you and that. And Edo says, you know, online coaching is 
I don't know what he was saying then. It was like eight to 10 hours a day. It was like he would, he, the way he explained it was like it was, no one was going to do it. It was, it was way too much work. It was very expensive. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do that. That's me. I'm going to do this. You know, it doesn't matter that I've got kids. It doesn't matter that I've got no time. And um, this is, I'm, I want it that much. I'm going to do it. So like I, I signed up for online coaching straight away. Um, and that was it. I was, I was into the Edo world trying to learn everything I could, but there's still this, uh, I want the one arm handstand. That was still the, the big thing. Um, and that was when I then started researching, watching videos, uh, finding everyone on Facebook, on Instagram, who was training this way. And then, um, yeah, that was it. I was, I was hooked. Um, and I was in, in terms of my own personal training that I was doing this corrective exercise come personal training. Um, I sort of brought everyone with me down this journey as well. So I started introducing, you know, different ways of stretching, different ways of training with my clients, still using the check principles in terms of correcting posture and, and things like that. Um, but how I was teaching corrective exercise, uh, and I could barely touch my toes. I couldn't sit in a resting squat. I wasn't hanging, you know, all the, all the basics now that I call basics now. And I wasn't doing that, but I was teaching corrective exercise. So it was a really interesting time. Yeah. He really shocked the culture at large because I came a few years earlier from a calisthenics body weight approach. And it was very much just a sets and reps, train hard as often as you can just kill yourself to failure. There was no real rhyme or reason behind the structure. And then like yourself, I saw Udo Portal doing handstands. He was doing uh, advanced flexibility moves, back bridge, side splits, uh, strength movements, one-arm chin-ups, front levers. And it seemed like a really calculated approach. And that always was something that appealed to me because I pursued exercise science and physiotherapy in school. And going to his workshops and learning that he derived a lot of the principles from, say, gymnastics bodies who had a real programming-based approach in addition to Charles Poliquin, who was one of the great pioneers with uh, strength conditioning and applying that stuff to this world of gymnastic strength and calisthenics was a real game changer for me too. And like yourself, Paul, that just hooked me knowing that I could apply principles of progressive overload, program design, and see transformations with what I could do with my body, it's, it still hooks me to this day. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and it's still, you know, you can, I can still, if I go train somewhere different, you'll get into conversations with people in gyms and things, and they won't have a clue who Edo is. You know, it's still like a very small world, um, you know, and I, especially if I train anything you know, you could do a, like a front lever pull in a normal gym, um, something that I think is, again, quite a basic movement, you know, even in a tuck position. And the, like the gym turns turns around and looks at you like you're this strange guy. And that's before I've, you know, done a one-arm handstand or something. And, um, yeah, it's it's still such a such a small world, which is I think is, amazing, is crazy. I think, you know, m m way more people should know about it and not just people that want to achieve the extremes, but just, you know, everyone should be hanging. Everyone should be doing scapular work. Everyone should be doing, you know, this, this way of mobilizing the body as well. Like I, I literally couldn't put my hands above my head because um, my thoracic was just all stuck. 
no hip mobility, you know, struggled to touch my toes. But I thought I was, you know, I could lift some heavy dumbbells and I could, um, and my posture wasn't terrible standing with my hands by my side. But yeah, as soon as, as soon as you open up and try some of these other movements, you're like, I literally can't move. I feel that when you want to achieve some of these more advanced movements, i.e. press to handstand, it really highlights if you have any deficits in your active flexibility because you'll just require brute strength in order to do it. And as we know, that's not an efficient way to go about doing things, which I think is both the blessing and the curse when it comes to this stuff because the barrier to entry when you think about it is pretty high. You need to build this capacity of uh, movement like range of being able to do uh, thoracic extension, as you said, full shoulder flexion. And based on daily life and even regular gym movements, we're not going often to these extreme ranges of motion. So I feel that when people see this stuff, they think, oh, were, were you a gymnast? Were you gifted, et cetera, et cetera. And if they don't know that there's a methodical approach to doing it, I think most people just put in the too hard basket, which I guess is where people like yourself and me who didn't have a background in this stuff we learnt as adults can be proof to other people to motivate them to get involved in this stuff because once people get an element of success, they start to increase their range of motion, feel a little bit more free in their body, and that translates to strength progression. Just getting those small wins is absolutely key, and it's about scaling things back, which is really important to teach people. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I, th I think the, the big thing as well that I always had that, for me it was a, a driver, this this thing I wanted, which for me it was the one-arm handstand at the time. Um, going down that pathway did open up, oh, I want this press handstand or I want this handstand push-up as well. But the main driver was this one-arm handstand and I already committed to train daily for it. Now, training daily might have been a 10-second handstand in, in my head at the time, but I'd already made that commitment and that was the driver. That was the, the thing that made me practice every day. That was the thing that made me stretch. That was the, that was the thing. And I, and I find with most of my clients, especially older, older clients that have lots of other commitments, whether it's family and things like that, if they don't have that thing they really want, the driver, I can tell them that they're going to feel better or they're going to, you know, have a healthy shoulder or it's just not big enough. So they need something and, and finding that thing, I think, is, is crucial for everyone. Um, so that, I think that's the, that's the big, the big one. Um, the people that don't tend to have that and they, they want to follow this, um, like Edo's a really, he's really clever at selling the movement culture. And then people will go, okay, I, I want to do this thing, the movement culture. That means I must do handstand pushups, one arm handstands, uh, skin the cat. Uh, I must have straight arm strength, bent arm strength. I must be able to do a lizard crawl. I must be able to do all these things. And then like three months later, they've given up because they don't have this, this main driver, this thing. And I think that's, that's the type of people that I like to work with that have got, you know, find their, their one thing and just use that as the, um, the driver. And then they'll put the work in. Um, and it could be a press handstand, it could be a one-arm handstand, or it could be a, a one-arm chin, whatever it is. 
And I think that's key. That is what excites people about this calisthenic stuff, but also overwhelms them because as we've already spoken about for the past 10 minutes, it's just been so many different options of exercises that you can work on and people can really spread themselves thin, get nowhere and get frustrated. How many goals do you recommend working on at the same time? Um, so I would, in terms of when, when someone comes to me for online coaching, I get them to do a, a wish list, a goal list, but I try and get them to prioritize that. And then from that, that list, then I work out, okay, how balanced is it? Because what I like people to do is have a straight arm goal, a bent arm goal, uh, and a balanced goal. That's what people are tending to come in to me for because that's what I promote. That's what I, I sell, if you like, in terms of my social media and that what I put out. Um, so people tend to come with they want to press handstand or they want a handstand push-up or they want a freestand and a handstand. Um, and then so I'll put whatever their priority is as that shining light, like I was talking about a minute ago. So that's the driver. But then I'll add in, um, normally they'll have some other goals as well. They tend to be big ones. Um, but normally I'll add in, so have a bent arm strength, a straight arm strength and a balance goal. And then depending on those goals, they will determine the mobility that's required. And then I'll sort of program from that. So I like to have uh, two or three goals but I like to have one at the top of the pyramid and then obviously explain how we do that. So for me, it's always been pushing has been my main thing. So I'm much better at uh, handstands, handstand push-ups, and things like that. Pulling, not so much. So that's always been like a secondary goal for me. So majority of my training would be if I'm doing a superset between pushing and pulling, I'm doing the pushing first. And then I followed it by the pull-in. And the pull-in is never going to be as intense or as good as the, the pushing because I programmed that way. Now, so a lot of people would see that as, you know, well, you should swap them over. You should work the weaker one. But I find with a lot of people, when you do that, they'll train less because they're, they're just not, they're not driven. They're not, you know, in, in, they're not enjoying it so much. So I, I like to have that. Ideally, three goals. So you have balance, a bent arm strength, and a straight arm strength. Uh, occasionally, I'll get someone that has, you know, legs might be up there in terms of their their movement goals or something. Uh, but it tends to be those movements. And then with the leg work, I'll tend to use the mobility as a lot of the leg training. Um, so using like Cossack squats, using um, the squat itself. Um, um, the straddle work, straddle good morning, straddle pancake work, doing uh, active work there where a lot that's a lot of the leg training. It's very challenging, I think, if someone's got big leg goals to, co to combine that with big upper body goals at the same time. So, you know, it's not that's not like a straight answer in terms of how many goals. It's really tricky to, to put all that together. But that's where it's the individual programming comes in. Of course. And I think you've explained that clearly from a principal perspective. And it's a golden takeaway for everyone listening is despite having one to three primary goals that you're working on, it's not as if your primary goal comes at the expense of everything else. It's just a matter of emphasis and prioritization. Because just say, even in your case, you were very passionate about the handstand 
most of your training would be geared around the handstand. It's not as if you completely ne- neglected pulling stuff because as you said, it's about getting that structural balance, the antagonist muscles that support your pushing as well. But you're not going with it the same type of intensity volume as you would your primary goals. So I really just want to draw that home for people listening that you've got to have the main thing, your main shining light, because you put the most effort into that, you have the most enjoyment from it. Don't completely neglect everything else, but at the same time, don't try and put the same level of effort into that accessory stuff, if you will, compared to your primary work. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and normally if you if someone's goal like press handstand would be up there on the top things that people come to me for, and you get someone, especially someone in their 40s who wants to get a press handstand, you know, they they were like if they're like me, they're struggling to touch their toes. They can't sit in a straddle position. Um, and they want to freestand in press handstand. You know, you break that down into all the components, you've basically got a full body workout just to get the press handstand because you've got all the mobility associated with it. Um, You've got the the balance work, plus you've got the strength component and conditioning the scapula and the traps and the upper back. And um, yeah, it's it's basically a full body workout. And then you just add some skin the cats or some straight arm pulling work in there as well. It's, It's nearly a full package. So explaining that to the clients is, is really important to get them to understand that that's a full body exercise. What would be the biggest progressions or best overall exercises for those different categories you would recommend for a beginner looking to learn the press handstand? So, so mobility is such a big one, um, especially through uh, spinal, spinal articulation. So if you take something like a Jefferson curl, it's such a, a great exercise is increasing forward fold flexibility. So a lot of people look at a, like the static bottom position of a Jefferson curl and go, okay, you're doing a, a forward fold. Um, but there's so much more involved through there because you've got spinal articulation on the way down. So basically you're trying to get as much movement through each segment of the spine on the way down uh, throughout the movement. Then we get into the hamstrings and the calves. And if you actually become good at a Jefferson curl, it turns into a low back stretch as well. So you take a, take a movement like that and you're, you're halfway there to a press handstand. If you've got great articulation on the way down and you've got a deep forward fold. So I definitely use a Jefferson curl with majority of my program in any way, because it's such a great exercise for that because it hits so many things. Um, and then for a press handstand, um, the handstand itself. So the balance, needs to be really, really strong. And I'm a big, um, a big believer in really getting someone very good at under balance in the handstand for majority of skills. So whether you're training towards a planche, uh, press handstand or handstand push up, if you struggle with under balance, if your shoulders, uh, don't want to come forwards in the handstand, so you can't do like a toe pull exercise off the wall, you're going to struggle with balance in a handstand in general, you're going to struggle with the star of the press, the star of the handstand push up, um, and just uh, rebalancing the handstand. So the toe pull type movement is critical for learning any of those movements, especially the press handstand. So the balance would all be around that 
you know, getting control so you can kick up five to ten times in a row, always catch the handstand, and then you can take the shoulders forwards and the feet backwards slightly, create this control and underbalance, and that allows you then to do partial range, uh, eccentrics, um, and that type of thing. So that, that would be the main balance type controller for the, or the concept to understand and train for the press handstand, but for all handstands. Um, the Jefferson curl, and then obviously if you work in, most people that work towards a press handstand would go towards a straddle position. So we need to start exploring the straddle pancake, straddle good mornings, those type of movements as well. Um, yep. So people that are following that would, if they progress all of those areas, gain the necessary flexibility, they have the balance in the handstand and that initiation of the technique with underbalance to start the press. Where do people go in terms of building the strength to be able to go up and down in that press handstand? Um, so from a pulling point of view, I always add in skin the cat for majority of people because I think understanding that, that scapular control to be able to open and close through that, that movement with straight arms. Um, so I add that in from a, a pulling aspect nice and early from that, um, the, to, from the pulling movement. And then, um, to the eccentric on the wall would be the first place I would go. So if say someone comes to me and they have some handstand experience and they want to press handstand, the assessment process I go through is always an eccentric press of some sort. Now, majority of people will need to go against the wall. Um, I much prefer using the back to wall version, especially where I'm assessing and trying to fill gaps. Um, so I, I just watch how someone comes down through the movement with control. Um, so that tells me their full pathway, how can they control the movement? And then I'll look at partial range. How do they open up from there? So it'll be feet up on a high box. So using one of the plyo wooden boxes up on its end, uh, check people can go up from there and then understanding how do we slowly take that lower and lower, but still go up to your handstand with control from there. So it's really looking for those gaps but I'll always be doing the eccentric full range as part of that. But it depends in terms of whether you have someone, there's two different versions of back to wall eccentrics that I use, depending on how much help you need from the wall. And then once someone's got that, obviously it's the freestanding eccentric to go full range of motion. So that would be the, the main two press handstand drills I would use would be a really slow eccentric partial range but not getting stuck too high in the partial range. Because we have this, this point in the press handstand where if you're at 90 degrees, you don't actually need to use the spine at all. You can just open and close from the hip. And that's where a lot of people will get stuck. It's when you start to go lower and you have to start articulating through the spine, that's where people will get uh, into trouble. So trying to start to access that and do some work there, depending on the, on the individual. And like I said earlier, if they can't do like your standard toe pull and understand how to take the shoulders forwards to give you that counterbalance about from the legs and the hips coming down, they're going to get in trouble. So normally it's strengthening, working on that toe pull as well. So there's a, there's a few different components going on and it's very, you know, individualized. It's finding the gaps. Yeah. I think you broke that down. Excellent. From the different perspectives of flexibility, balance, and strength. And despite what we said earlier in this conversation about people trying to do 
a exercise as a whole as soon as possible, I feel the press handstand really exemplifies the need to break it down, the need to troubleshoot because people will see a press handstand, they will just go and try it with varying degrees of success, more often than not, not being able to do it. Or if I use myself as an example, as someone who's globally quite strong, but lacking range of motion in the forward fold, both from the posterior chain and the compression strength of the hip flexors, etc. I was always heavily planche press handstanding the exercise. And as we know, that's a very inefficient way to do it. We're looking for that nice stacking to make the movement efficient so we can do it easier and also more reps. So the major takeaway for people is troubleshoot your movement, film it, hire a coach that can look at where you're at and assess it. But being able to break it down allows you to spend the most time where it matters most. So if I was to go back wanting to do the press handstand, I would have spent a disproportionate amount of time working on that flexibility stuff as opposed to just trying to do wall press handstands or eccentrics because I would have not been able to strengthen my way from an upper body perspective into that compression necessary to make press handstands easier for me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I actually, something when I teach workshops and things, especially if I do a workshop in a yoga studio, um, I like to really um, show the different presses. So I press like a tight person. So, you know, I press more from like a squat position, take the shoulders forwards, frog the legs up um, and do a press there. And normally when, when, when I teach these, I really like to talk while I'm doing it. So people can hear my voice change when I do a planchy tuck press type movement because I'm obviously going to struggle with my talk. So I get the words out as I, as I press up, but then as I slowly bring the feet in and stack the body more, I can hold a conversation and do five to 10 repetitions of the press. And then you slowly go backwards. And I think I'm a big believer of someone like yourself getting the press quickly by using strength. But then once you've unlocked it, then we go, okay, now we're going to confine your space. So, you know, maybe we go uh, have the wall to use as, um, to stop you from opening up so wide. So you might not be on the wall, but your back, your chest to the wall in terms of doing your presses. So it confines your, the amount your legs can go backwards. So it forces you to press in this more squished position. Because if we take someone like yourself, we could make you flexible and you could stack the press. But when you're not thinking about it, you're going to go back to your strength press because that's where your body's happy. So then using something like the wall or put something in the way. So if I, I'll do this and if someone, I've got someone who's, who can do both presses, but they prefer to use strength, I'll stand behind them like in the way and say, okay, do a press handstand, but don't kick me. So they have to go like press in front of my face and they, they have to use, you know, a different method that they don't want to use. And it's exactly the same as if you have a, a yogi who's got great flexibility and they do the press where they sort of lift up first. So they bring their feet up high towards their, um, their calves or something. And then they'll press from there, like in a pike way. So they get their hip on top first. I want to make that person stronger. I want to make them more like you. So I want them to be able to do a tuck uh, planchy press 
and I want them to be able to do a stacked press. Because if that person wants to get a stall to press, you need to start working with a lower hip position. So we need to start protracting more. We need to start pushing the shoulders forwards. So you need to start to fill those gaps. This episode is sponsored by Fitness FAQs. Become a bodyweight beast with our calisthenics workouts. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 at checkout to save 10% off when shopping at fitnessfaqs.com. Don't miss this discount. Start training smarter and enjoy the gains. Now for adults that are looking to gain range of motion and flexibility, could you demystify this world and maybe simplify, I guess, the principles of gaining flexibility for adults? Uh, I'd say the number one thing is we want to be visiting positions on a daily basis. Um, I think there's, you know, there's amazing, especially with YouTube and stuff now, there's some awesome follow-along um, flexibility programs and things that are, that are amazing. Um, and there's some great methods and things, but uh, the biggest thing is visiting the positions on a, on a daily basis uh, and hitting the main ones. So if you can hang daily, that will transform your body. And it's something so easy to do. It's just that most people don't have anywhere to hang at home. So, so that would be massive. Um, and then just get yourself a really small or build yourself a small daily practice that's like literally doing a, a couch stretch for 30 seconds on each leg, um, a forward fold or doing a single leg hamstring stretch and a glute stretch. And if you do a hang as well, you've basically got a full body flexibility program and it doesn't have to be uh, intense. Because what most people do is, okay, they, they'll see like, oh, I want to get the splits or something like that. So they'll go hammer themselves and then they can't walk for two weeks. So they don't do it again for three weeks and then they're back to that same thing again. So I think that creating this daily practice that you can do around the kids, you can do around, you know, you have some triggers. It might be like stretch your hamstring while you clean your teeth. It might be, um, you know, hang while the kettle is boiling or something. Something that triggers that daily practice, I think is, is really key and should be like number one, number one for most people. Then slowly progress that. Like if you want to, if you've got big goals in terms of flexibility, that's when you add in the extras, but most people just need that, that daily practice. I mean, I'm really lucky being a coach. So soon as I was like, okay, I want to get more flexible. I was doing my, my training, but say you came in for a session, I'm joining in when I'm demoing the exercise. I'm not just standing with my arms crossed, watching you do the quad stretch. I'm doing it with you. So, so now like, on a typical day where I'm seeing face-to-face -face clients or even actually my online clients, I'm doing the stretches with them. So, you know, on a daily basis, I might be visiting a forward fold, you know, 10 times. So that's why I can, you know, I don't need to really do forward fold stretching because I'm doing it in my, in my daily, daily practice, my daily routine. And I think that's the, that's the key for adults is to visit the positions on a daily basis. I couldn't agree any more with you. And I think that we're both fortunate that we were indoctrinated, for a lack of a better word, into this idea of movement not being a workout per se. And I think that's full credit to Ido Portal who bucked the trend that, you know, you've got to do your 50-minute workout three to four times a week and, and that's enough. It's the idea of 
integrating this range of motion into your daily practice through hanging, squatting, when you're you know working at the computer, if you want to go on your phone for a little bit, squat. If you're watching television, you can do a couch stretch and just go through various positions and integrate it into your daily life. For adults, I feel that will move the needle of their range of motion. If they're combining that with full range of motion in their conventional training, that's key. Throw in some extra homework with some dedicated flexibility practice as a workout per se. And I feel that there's no reason why you can't gain range of motion as an adult. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, the biggest thing that in flexibility when I first started that I struggled with, but what I really wanted was the straddle pancake position. I've got a great photo of me at 37 in my gym and I'm, I'm sitting in a straddle position with my back all rounded and I've got a weight plate literally on my head and I'm in a horrible position. But I use that as like, a, this is where I was at 37 and now I can lay flat on the floor in, in pancake. Uh, and yes, I'd done good mornings. I'd done you know, some hard stretching, but every day I sat playing Xbox in that position. I played, sat playing with the kids. I sat on my laptop in the straddle position. I popped myself up with cushions and stuff in a much less intense position. But, you know, every night I was sitting in that position because there was the driver that I wanted that thing. Uh, and that made me do it. And obviously that's, you know, allowed such a, such a big change in, in a relatively short amount of time. Yes, I've been doing it for nine or 10 years and I'm flat now. Um, but it took about 12 months to 18 months to, to get uh, chin, chest to the floor in Pancake, which at 37 is pretty quick. But that's because, you know, I, I basically hang, hung out in that position for, for long periods of time. What helped me to overcome the complexity of flexibility and different opinions of how many sets, how many reps the whole time, how often should you do it a week, etc. was there's an inverse relationship between the intensity of your stretch and how often you do it. So as you've said in this example of integrating daily stretching into your practice, you're doing it often daily and for sometimes cumulatively long periods of time, but it's not intense. Like you said, you could be playing Xbox, not really thinking about it, not in too much pain, but before you know it, you've spent minutes and minutes in the stretch and if done frequently, that really adds up. And then on the flip side, if you have some really serious flexibility goals like a side split, for example, there's nothing wrong with doing your one serious workout a week as an example, getting sore from it, and then doing that again the following week. But it's not as if you're going to go all out every single day, stretching to the max, being sore, pushing through it. That isn't really the most ideal way to go about it from a sustainability perspective potentially injury perspective and just mentally even because unless you're some kind of super robot, people can't stick to something that is so intense, so painful for any considerable period of time. And that's why I really want to drive home your point there, Paul, which I think is fantastic. Everyone can subscribe to is this idea of doing your daily dosage, if you will, of flexibility. Yeah. Yeah, and really have those triggers that make you revisit like that accountability because it is really easy to get you know oh three days time you go oh 
I haven't stretched. I forgot to do that. So, so to have some sort of trigger that makes you do it, like you don't forget to clean your teeth every day. So put something in there that, that triggers that, that flexibility, even something simple, like when you put your socks on, you know, put your socks on with a straight leg. So you get a calf hamstring stretch. It's super simple. And you watch most people put their socks on, you know, they're struggling to get their foot anywhere close to their hand. And, um, so, so yeah, put things in place. Uh, when you're, when you're training a body part, that's not connected to another body part, you could still do a warm up. You know, your general warm up should be some general flexibility. Like the foam roller changed my life for my, my upper back. I, I remember that first time I was in a fitness first and someone showed me a foam roller and I tried to lay backwards on it. And it's like, I could, literally could not move and so much pain. Uh, and I have it now I use them daily. You know, laying over the front roller, rolling up and down. It's just, it's just, yeah, daily practice. The handstand push-up, the freestanding handstand push-up is a goal that many people are pursuing. How would you go about troubleshooting this exercise and determining what should be done to be able to unlock it? So I'd, I'd do very similar to the press handstand, was trying to get people to an eccentric as quick as possible so we can see what's going on. So in an assessment point of view, uh, if they're, they seem a long way from a eccentric, then there's probably some strength challenges to, to deal with there. Um, but majority of people that come to me that want to learn a handstand push up have the strength. They just struggle with the balance and understanding, uh, positioning, keeping the body one segment and then how to train it in terms of chest to wall, back to wall. Uh, a lot of people will get stuck and do lots of pike push ups. Now pike, pike push ups are awesome. But the big issue with pike push-up is that you're folded in the hip. So in terms of the, the one segment being in the right place, it's not ideal. So I, if I can get people to do a straight body eccentric as quick as possible, now that could be uh, chest to wall. It could be ideally freestanding. Um, so that would be number one, trying to get them to there. And then I need to assess that they can control the top position and the bottom position. Now the top position is simple. It's a freestanding handstand. Now, if they don't have the control in the freestanding handstand, obviously that's something else and that needs to be priority because that just takes time to get. It doesn't mean you can't work towards the handstand push-up when you don't have a freestanding handstand, but you just need to be realistic that you're not going to have a freestanding handstand push-up. So, so that would be, that would be number one would be to, to, to get them towards that eccentric, check they can do the top position, check they can hold the bottom position. Um, and straight away, I would be working, actually work majority of my clients very quickly onto shoulder stands and, and getting the control in a shoulder stand. So a straight body shoulder stand. Uh, I think that's a fantastic exercise that everyone should work towards, uh, especially people working towards that handstand push up. Because if we can get control lowering into that position, um, I've mentioned them before, like the IKEA steps are fantastic for that. P bars are good as well but to have that solid bottom position because most people's eccentric, um, if you do an eccentric, especially chest to wall where your head just kisses the floor and you have to exit, it's very, very uncomfortable and a challenge just to get out of the position and use so much energy. So being able to come down to a deficit allows you obviously to get bigger range of motion. So you're coming all the way down to chest or collarbone, but it also allows you to have, just to do more repetitions because you can, you can easily enter and exit the position. So that would be the biggie to do eccentrics. 
Um, and then going back to that toe pull position again. So, or the, um, the underbalance. So being able to take the shoulders forwards and backwards in a freestanding handstand, ideally, if not against the wall, uh, is critical for get to get a handstand push up. Um, that would, that would be a, a number one. And I, but I, if someone's been with me for a while, then they would already be learning those toe pull exercises, those shoulder stands, even before we've, you know, spoken about handstand push ups. So they would be the main ones. The eccentric is is uh, really really good to train that pathway and understand the balance because the balance um, will to, will will make the difference between getting reps and not getting reps of the handstand push ups. Because understanding as you come down, the shoulders come forwards. If you watch someone who's like amazing, look at some monster or someone like that when they do handstand push ups. His feet are here, his shoulders here. This is how he's controlling his body. So he's pivoting his body stand one segment as he comes down, it's there. As he comes back up, it's there. Like he's scooping the body up, but the body stays as one segment. So starting to get the ability to do that in eccentrics uh, will will make the handstand push up to the point where you can hold a conversation and do reps. So that's that's a biggie, that um, toe pull position. How about someone who's in that frustrating stage where they've got enough strength for chest to wall handstand push-ups they can do a freestanding handstand they're not too bad at freestanding handstand push-up eccentrics how about bridging the gap to be able to bust out reps of freestanding handstand push-ups from so i would use uh they're not adding the partial range so eccentric is going to give you the time under tension throughout the movement but obviously only for an eccentric phase so to go back up and down I'd use like a yoga block on its end. So go down, touch your forehead to the yoga block, come back, repetitions there. Then just flip the yoga block over, do exactly the same thing. Get the repetitions there and then obviously go all the way down until you can get your forehead to touch the floor. Um, that, would, that would be my go-to. So it would be the if they've got a strong handstand, they're strong enough to do it in terms of the they can do chest wall reps against the wall then it would just be partial range and super slow eccentrics to a deficit. Put those two together and most people will unlock handstand push-ups. Yeah, I feel if they followed what you said, they would be absolutely fine. But just to give another shout out to Simonster, another exercise I learned from him was picture yourself doing a pike push-up. You're doing feet on the ground, head is on the ground. You then lift your legs up towards that shoulder stand position but as you let the momentum of your legs come up, you push through the concentric and then you do the eccentric. So you're skipping through the concentric with a little bit of assistance and then you're following it up with an eccentric. So another useful progression people can apply to. Yeah, and I, I, a real good way to see if someone, how much strength someone has is to do a headstand. So you're just balancing in a headstand slowly tilt the body backwards so we put more weight into the hands and then push as hard as you can to go up to see if you can get a concentric that's obviously very challenging from a strength point of view uh, but that's a really good exercise as well and and you can do strict uh crow to handstand as well like a frog to handstand the only downside of that is it gets very kippy and tends to arch the body where if you can really learn to use that one segment again that Simonster is just amazing at. Um, that's where things become very easy because you can work as one segment and 
get your body in the right place and it sort of pulls you out of the handstand. We've spoken a little bit today about straight arm strength. This is a whole world of fitness that is very foreign to people that have come from traditional training. Everything is bent arm pushing. We're talking bench press, overhead press, lap pull downs. It's all bent arm stuff. Straight arm strength, straight arm scapular strength is this whole other beast. What advice would you give for people starting out with straight arm strength? So I would normally start with the support positions. So top support uh, between parallel bars, between a box, understanding just how to hold your, your body there. You can obviously play around with those with going into L-sit positions or um, something like that. So holding that top position, hanging, hanging would be like a great place to go as well to start with, uh, and then building some scapular control. So active passive hangs, uh, retracted pulls. Um, so understand how to move the scapula around while maintaining that straight arm position. Uh, protracted um, protraction push-ups. So going between protraction and retraction uh, in a push-up position, a lot of people have to go down to their knees in those positions. Understanding, um, like holding a plank-like position, but being protracted. So the start of doing um, planche leans. But most people, when they try and do a planche lean to start with, they've got no protraction control. So they'll lean forwards, but they'll collapse through the scapula. So most people just can't get into that real good protracted position. So literally a plank holding up in that top position. And you normally have to physically grab people and push them up into protraction so they can feel that. But then if you start to explain to them, like if you push down on their back when they're in protraction, they start to get an idea of what that feels like. And then obviously you can go to planche leans from there. Uh, and then I would go into skin the cat, I think is an amazing way of, um, you know, you can get people upside down, especially on rings quite quickly and then just trying to get them to, to fight the body coming down through that eccentric down to the hanging position. Um, that's a great way of introducing it. And then obviously if someone's a bit stronger, you can start to, to get them to go up and down through the start of that front lever pull skin the cap movement. And then you can start to play with that German hang on the other side, which is, you know, obviously going towards more planchy type positions. Um, but that would be my main main ones is just understanding the scapula in the in the protraction uh, hold that push up position and then the the skin the cat would be the the good ones. Most people think back levers, front levers. I'm not a big fan of training too much back lever. I think that's something that comes for free for most people if you're going to do some planche work. Um, I've never really trained back lever, uh, and I can hold 10, 15 seconds in a full back lever and have a conversation and it's not because from you know i've trained back lever so i think there's you have to be a little bit clever with your training and not spend lots of time on exercises that um you, you know you don't that aren't going to open more doors you you definitely want to stick that's why i think like i say the skin the cat is such a great exercise carries over you can if you do skin the cat and progress it to a 360 pull you know a straight body skin the cat you, you, you're basically mastering your habit. You'll, you'll probably give yourself, it'd be actually an interesting experiment to do with someone, go from a uh, skin the cat to a 360 pull, no planche training, and then see if they can do a planche. They could probably do a, you know, a, probably an advanced tuck planche or something without even training it. It would be interesting. Obviously, if someone gets the point they're doing a 360 pull, they're probably 
training everything else yeah, as well. But. Exactly. But it would not surprise me for them to have some carryover given that it's a straight arm strength, there's a scapular component, they're working their prime mover muscles in those biomechanically similar motions at the shoulder. But yeah, that would be a cool experiment. With straight arm scapular strength, we can do that through full range of motion with dynamic exercises, and we can also work straight arm scapular strength isometrically. What rep ranges would you use for dynamics and what hold times would you recommend for isometrics? Uh, I would vary the hold times. Most people, when they start out, they probably have two shorter times. So for someone's initial conditioning, I would go less sets, longer time, you know, working up to like, I'd like to say 20 to 30 seconds, but that's probably too long for more beginners. So probably around that 15 second mark, 15 to 20 second is probably a good place to start with fewer sets. Um, and then building up to, you know, six to eight seconds peaking around there. But then obviously if you're doing six to eight seconds in a planche or a front lever position, you need to be doing 12 sets. You know, you need to really, so, so time under tension in your workout is a big thing. So just mixing that up, depending on your, um, so if you're new to training, definitely start with less sets, longer time as you, as you go with it. I would still, if I'm training someone who's up to doing, you know, six second holds in planche and front lever, I would still get them to warm up with a 20 to 30 second hold. So I would still do some of those, you know, as part of their warm up. Um, I think anyone who's working advanced planche, uh, and front lever positions should be able to hold a 30 second tuck planche, uh, front lever, you know, have a conversation in the front lever. That, that should be a, a given if you're going to, if you're going to push it. Um, and then if you're going to be dynamic, dynamics a little bit more interesting because it's more time as well, time under tension through the range of motion, because you can do, you know, 10 reps flying up and down in front lever pulls, or you can do four reps and, you know, have a, have a five second eccentric or something and slow it down a lot. So that, that I'd play with a little bit more depending on the individual. I'd, I'd prefer to go fewer repetitions with the dynamic dynamics around the four to five reps, but increase the time per rep. Yeah. And I really want to drive home what you said there with longer hold times being a good recommendation for most people, because universally from my experience, what I've seen is people are training too high intensity for too low duration and it really compromises the total quality of work they can do. Because as you said, you've got to do a disproportionate number of sets to accumulate enough work to, for it to be productive. And I just feel that this is people rushing the process. You've, you really can't rush it, especially with these isometric holds. I feel you'll get more quality practice by doing around that 15 second hold time for fewer sets. Um, because the total amount of work will be great. And I just feel that if more people were willing to put the ego aside a little bit and work on a progression that they could handle a lot of work for, the progress would be so much quicker. Because I feel with bodyweight exercises, we tend to get it mixed up when it comes to the intensity. With, say, a bench press, you wouldn't come in every workout and be working one reps, two reps, It'd be quite an inefficient way of getting stronger, fatiguing, etc. And the same thing applies to calisthenics, but we just see this end goal 
and we try and do the hardest thing possible every time. Yeah, definitely. And I think like having like planche is a really good one. So I, I try and get my goal of when someone working towards a planche, especially if they're doing balance work with me as well, is I want them to do a handstand to planche. So if they can't hold a static position for time, there's no way they're going to be able to lower from a handstand to a planche because you need to nearly even have that like catch when you come down, being able to control the, the, the landing. Um, and then that will take you on to planche presses. And, you know, it's useful to have a handstand to tuck planche when you're working towards stool to press, for example, to be able to handle that lower hip position uh, and the change in scapula as well from going from that open position to protracted position with the hand, the, the shoulder at a different angle, um, understanding how to control that. Um, yeah, you really want to be able to show control in those static positions because they'll unlock doors to other things. So yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm going to test your skills here, Paul, to see how succinctly you can explain this for the viewer. How would you design a calisthenics strength program? Um, so I would lay down the, the main movements. So from a, the straight arm, bent arm point of view and, and tick the boxes from a pushing, pulling point of view. Um, I would normally run through the basics first to check they can do the basic things. So, you know, uh, dips, chin ups, pull ups, scapular control, uh, front lever pull, skin the cat type movement. So run through those to check they can do it. Uh, check they have the mobility to access the positions that they're trying to achieve. So, so that's a biggie as well because you get people that are very strong, but they might be missing some mobility somewhere. So, so that needs to be assessed um, to see whether they've got, um, you know, the range of motion to it to achieve the positions, um, and and then just check it's balanced. Um, that that's that are the main things I would go through. What level on those basic bodyweight exercises are you looking for in terms of reps, etc.? Uh, it's more control through the reps. So, you know, a, a, a chin up is a really good example. You know, a lot of people can bang out reps, but you know, is their nose to the bar? Uh, are they coming down to this position or are they straining their arms? You know, the amount of people that can't straighten their arm when they're on, when they're hanging from a bar. So, so straight away, their range of motion is this, but they can do 20 reps. So that person, you know, I'm going to concentrate on getting three to five good reps. Uh, I think three to five, if you can do uh, that type of range, full range of motion, both on dips, chins, uh, even push-ups. You know, when you do a push-up, can you come all the way down, touch your chest to the floor? Can you go all the way up into protraction for three to five good solid repetitions? I think if you can show control for, you know, three to five doesn't sound a lot, but if we're slowing down the tempo and making sure that you've got full range of motion across there, can you hold a support position between, you know, two P bars and have your shoulders depressed and have your chest open and have a conversation there? So, so that means a lot more than to me than being able to hold this for 45 seconds. So it's quality of positions and not hundreds of reps, but three to five repetitions, I think. And then where needed in those support I like to call them home positions, be able to hold a conversation while you're there to show control in them. Because again, you don't want to be look like you're in a great position, but if you're holding your breath 
and you're going to, you know, your intensity is so high, it's not a useful position. So, and that could be a flexibility thing. Normally someone who's strong and they're struggling in a position, it's flexibility, it's not necessarily strength. I'm really glad that you made that distinction between quantity and quality because both are important, but so, so true that the quality of the movement is absolutely integral for these harder positions. Because as you said, if you can bang out 20 dips, 30 push-ups, 10 pull-ups, but the range of motion doesn't reflect what you're trying to get to at an advanced level, it almost is redundant because you don't have the requisite strength through the full range of motion, despite having on paper the quantity down pat. So if people were to take away that idea of this really embracing and taking pride in the quality of your technique first and foremost, and then aiming to progress your repetitions, especially on the basic movements, that'll set you up for life with the advanced strength skills that you want to work on. Yeah. Like a, like a muscle-up, a ring muscle-up is a, is a good example where a lot of people will be able to tick the boxes in terms of, yeah, I can do dips, I can do chin-ups. Um, you know, if your chin-ups and dips are very strong, have a great range of motion, you should be able to get a ring muscle-up pretty quickly. But most people have some gaps and it could be that mobility or it could just be they've been training in such a limited range of motion um, that then they have to they have this big gap to fill when they try and get through that muscle up. But I mean, we've all seen people that are super strong, have good range of motion and they come into a class, never done a muscle up before and they get a muscle up like that. And it's just because they've got, you know, strong pull, they've got good open chest position. They can pull this high on the rings and they just do this and they've done a muscle up. But obviously we want to try and condition that uh, transition more for opening up other movements like rolls on the rings or something like that. But, um, yeah, if someone trains with that type of quality from the early stages, it's just going to set them up in a really good place for, for everything else. Like handstands is a really common one as well, where you'll get people will not think that they're at a high level they are, but they've just got gaps. They don't realize they're there. You know, it's often that I'll get someone saying they want to work towards a one arm handstand, but they'll, I'll say, okay, show me 10 kickups in a row and catch every kickup and they catch two kickups out of 10. So, you know, it's not they shouldn't start working towards one arm handstand, but there's some basics there that they need to they need to fill the gaps. And they might have a 70 second freestand and handstand, but it's, you know, 20 tries to get that 70 seconds where we wanted to get it first go. So yeah, filling the gaps, making sure you got the basics down is really important. I feel most people understand the importance of basics and they work on them, they tick them off, and now their body is in a position to work on hard elements. The puzzle and the challenge is how much of the basics to keep doing whilst you're working on other stuff. Because I've seen people that tick off the basics, I'm done. My body's good, I'll just work on the hard stuff. And often they tend to plateau because they almost lack that foundation to support the advanced movements. How do you go about still incorporating the basics to an extent that supports your practice but doesn't fatigue you so much that you can't work on the goals that you have? Yeah, that, that's really tricky and very individualized. I mean, if you're a coach, I think it's simple. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a coach and you're teaching classes, you're teaching clients, 
that's your opportunity to, like I've said before with the stretching, to do more stretching. But, you know, your demonstrations and things, my, my, my two-arm handstand is so solid because I teach handstands, not because I can do a one-arm handstand. So whenever I, whenever I'm teaching, I'm teaching, I'm going beyond in terms of demoing. Some people would say sometimes the point of showing off and I am like a secret show off as well, but like you're just getting more and more repetitions of those basics. So if someone says, you know, kick up to a straddle and open and close between straddle and straight, something that's relatively easy once you get to an advanced level. Um, I've probably done that three times this week already just from, you know, teaching. So, so it makes it much easier if you are a coach, if you're not a coach, then I would include something in your warm up to the thing you're working towards. It's, it's challenging if you're so, it's so far removed from the skill you're working, but most people, you know, if, the, if you're doing something that's bent arm pushing, then you can warm up with the basic stuff. So, and if you're not doing some sort of check-in every so often, like I check in more, I call it a check-in, but it's, it's some benefit in doing it. I do that with my deadlifts, my basic strength movements, like once a month, maybe, or once every, I'm probably doing a bit more at the moment, once every two weeks, um, I'll do a heavy deadlift session. And I want to make sure I can still lift that weight because that's like my check-in on that movement to check I can do it. And um, I think that's worth doing with the key elements, especially if you're, if the skills you're working on in the moment, in the like in your program at the moment, are quite removed from your other skills that you've achieved, checking in at some sort of level once a month, once every two weeks is probably the way to go, which is some basics. But it is tricky and it's very individualized. Yeah, for sure. And then just setting your own, I guess, minimum standards for the foundation is probably good practice too. Just if you are going to incorporate basics into your warm up. You don't have to have a progression mindset. You could just keep it at doing, say, three sets of 10 dips with really good form and you keep that as a minimum standard while you go hard on your handstand push-ups or your other pushing goals that you have. The hard, the hard ones are the extremes. So a one-arm chin-up, a one-arm handstand, you know, the, the, the more super advanced stuff, you're probably going to have to be realistic that they're going to drop off a little bit if you don't do them for a while. And, and obviously if you've got a one arm chin going in cold and just making sure it's there is probably not the best way to do it. So, you know, you need, you need to be realistic with certain movements that they, they're going to, they're going to back off a little bit. But like a good example is I, so I've, I've got a one arm chin, one arm chin up once on my, uh, on my left arm. Uh, when I was training with Edo, so I stopped training it uh, through. Well, the, the the driver wasn't there as much for me for the pulling movements, um, but I've maintained a level where I can do uh, eccentrics on both sides because I feel that that's a good level for me. But I haven't tried to to maintain uh, more advanced than that. So I've got this thing, in, and and it's not. There's no science behind it. In my head, I've just gone, okay, I want to be able to do a eccentric chin on, on both sides. Um, and that's the level that I'm happy with. So I just check it's there every so often. And the maturity there is absolutely fantastic because you've set this as what you deem as 
the level of pulling strength you want to be able to maintain and a controlled eccentric on one arm without assistance is a very high level of pulling strength. Don't get it twisted. I know you're hearing that and saying that because you're comparing it to people that are repping out one-arm chin-ups, pull-ups, like it's nothing. But let's not forget that the average person can't do pull-ups or chin-ups with two arms. So being able to do an eccentric on one arm is, is a crazy feat. But the maturity in the sense of you know that if you were to work on the one-arm chin-up for reps to be able to get one, two reps, full range of motion, it'd come at a cost. You'd have to sacrifice other stuff that you're doing and prioritize pulling at the start. And as you've perfectly said in this podcast, that is not your priority. You don't enjoy it as much. So you put it later and just keep that as your as your foundation. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And, that's, and that is really tricky um, to work out what to do uh, across the board in terms of programming because there's so many things and the deeper you get down this type of training, the more you think oh, I should have a full planche, a one-arm chin, a one-arm handstand, um, you know, and a hundred kilo snatch. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, because, because that's Just one of the issues now with social media and that, you know, you've only got to turn on Instagram and there's someone doing that. There's someone snatching crazy amount of weight, repping out one-arm chins and doing full planches. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge especially if you're in the industry. Oh, for sure, yeah. But what I always go with, and I often say this to people is, especially as a coach or a personal trainer, which many people listening are or aim to be, as long as if you're at a level of ability that is respectable to yourself and the average person you're teaching, being if you have a little bit more than what the person has or desires to have, that's good enough. And I can imagine most people you're teaching, Paul, are trying to learn a handstand. So you doing a one-arm handstand is like, wow, I've got to learn off this guy. But as we all know, there's circus performers that would just do circles around what you can do and vice versa. Same for me with, say, weighted pulling. Like if people come to me because they admire the fact I can do a one-arm chin-up or two, that's great. I don't have to be able to do 10. So the, the takeaway for people is, don't feel insecure or compare yourself too much to the pinnacle on social media. If you're a teacher, just be proud knowing that if the average person comes to you and you're at their level, if not a little bit better, it's more than enough. Yeah, definitely. What, what was really interesting is when I changed from uh, with my social media as I went more into online coaching. So you start thinking about marketing and what gets the most impact from posts and things. Um, if you look back, uh, previously on my Instagram, you'll see I was posting one-arm handstands all the time. And if you look at the numbers of interactions and views on those one-arm handstand videos, they're very, very low. Soon as I swapped over to doing more handstand push-ups, presses, more variations that are more uh, you know approachable for the average person coming in to start with, uh, it's doubled my interactions and views and things. And it's, it's actually really sad to see some really top level hand balancers and they've got such a small following and you, you know, you, you see them doing these extreme feats, um, on one hand and they don't get any, any praise or any uh, recognition. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, a lot of that comes back to, it seems 
way too distant, way too unattainable. It can be admired. It can be motivational to see some crazy feat of human strength, balance, or flexibility, but it's too far out of reach. For most people, it's, oh, yeah, I, I could see myself learning a handstand. Oh, you know, kicking up into a wall, that doesn't seem impossible, but doing a one-arm press to handstand and then jumping to various canes on one arm, you can admire it, but it's it's just not approachable to the average person. Yeah, yeah, that's correct, yeah. What are the biggest differences you've found in terms of students that succeed compared to those that fail to make progress? Um, I think it's the, the having that drive or that main passion, like to really enjoy what they want as opposed to what they think they should be doing. I think that's a big one. Um, and also creating a self-practice that fits with their lifestyle, their life, uh, is really important because obviously I, I can write five people the same program because they're, they're coming to me with the same goals and they have the same ability. But if that program doesn't fit into their, their day, their, their lifestyle, um, and they're not, uh, they don't take ownership of it to a point where they can adapt things. You know, I always, I always get asked cause I have, uh, you know, a big family and lots of kids. Like, how do I train around around that? But I don't, I don't know any different. So that's my lifestyle. That's how it's always been since you know I was in my twenties. I've always had lots of kids, so that's normal for me. So when I do my training, it I make it work. It fits because I want it that much. But I think that's the main difference is 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 finding something that you take ownership of. So you might be getting expertise from someone else who's helping you with the coaching side, but you, the individual needs to own it. I think that's, that's the big one. And, and they're the people that tend to, you know, they might stop training with you for six weeks and they might come back again. And they've been working out how they can train by themselves. They've, they've continued doing it for some reason. And, you know, I put it down to just having that drive, that passion and probably not juggling too many things at once. That, that's, a, that's a real tricky one because you will get people, like I get a lot of, of people that have a strong yoga practice that will come to me. They'll be training CrossFit um, and they want this skill as well. And unless they take their foot off the pedal on some other things, like it's really challenging to make it work. You know, I, I've done well with my progress in terms of this, this style of training, but I literally stopped everything else I was doing and only don't do this. You know, I'd love to do um, rock climbing, jiu-jitsu. Like there's loads of other things that I would love to explore, but I know the personality I have and there's no way I'd be able to do those other things at 100% and still train as I am. So, so it's, yeah, there's not one thing, but I think it's that really taking ownership and really wanting the thing enough to make some changes around it. I believe you're 100% right because people that juggle too many objectives, trying to make too much change at once, there's only so much willpower you've got at the end of the day to do it consistently, persistently, and progress over time. It takes a lot of effort and dedication. And if you're thinking, I'm going to improve this and also this and this and this, and I have a busy work life, family life, I have all these other hobbies 
more often than not, I see the same thing that you see in your students, Paul. It's that people just either make no progress or they fall off because there's such a thing as that ego depletion that you've only got so much willpower that you can exert towards certain things in a day and it's finite. It's not like I can excise willpower with my family and then with my training and then all these hobbies. There's only so much you can give and then by choosing just that one thing, that driving force, you actually get that element of success. You're putting your full energy into that and you'll see results as a byproduct. I feel the same as you. If I was to try and juggle too many things, like everyone else, I wouldn't be able to do it and I would would fail as a result, like the average client that tries to juggle too many things. You've had a few mentors over the years. We spoke about Ido Portel for movement, strength, and a bit of flexibility stuff. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned from mentors that you've been exposed to over the years? Um, I reckon it's what we just spoke about in terms of the the people that I've worked with. They're so passionate and into their thing that it's their main driver, their main vehicle to to live, basically. So, like, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Ido um, and to see him. So he's basically lives on the road. I'm not sure if he does now. Like, I've lost a bit of contact with him now, but... Um, you know, he was he was living on the road, uh, going to city to city, uh, doing workshops, teaching. He's obviously a hundred and ten percent into his thing, his craft, uh, and believes that a hundred percent. So, so being around that for what I learned from Edo was more just my eyes opening towards the the movement culture and you know this new thing. So, I that was what I was lapping up from him. Uh, but it, he actually it got to the point when I was training with him, that he wanted me to go in a certain direction and I actually didn't want to go in that direction. So I learned a big thing while training with him that wasn't what he was teaching, which is so it's just quite strange. So, you know, he wanted me to go down to this path of very more, much more movement. He wanted me to leave the, the strength work behind in a way because that was like ticked off. He calls it the basics. Uh, upper body basics so he said like you've done this you now we need to go over here and I was like no I like this this is me this isn't me over here so I actually decided to leave Edo's training then because of that so and I believe he sort of really taught me that even though he was trying to pull me off in a different direction um, and then when I started working with Yuval so Yuval Alilon um, Yuval on hands um his was exactly the same as Edo, but completely different again. He was living this this thing, and I, I went and so I, I trained with him online. I'd done a retreat with him, and I was lucky enough to go over and spend a week at uh, Yuval's house. So with his family, I lived with uh, Yuval for a week, um, and the same thing. He he lived this life, and it was. You know his his training, his lifestyle was him, and it was amazing. And so I saw that, like how he juggled his family. You know, when I when I stayed with him, it wasn't staying with him um, and uh, at a training school. I tra- I stayed with his family. I took his kids to school with him. You know, so it was it was it was 
learning how to um, the practice became his lifestyle, and that was amazing. So, so that's what I believe that I've created is I haven't copied anyone's way of training, or or and I have this thing that's on the outside. The training is part of my daily day to day being. Uh, and I enjoy it that much and I'm that passionate about it. So I think that's what I've learned the most out of working with different people is just to see an insight on how they capture that. I don't know if I've explained that in the right way, but no, that was that was perfect. Paul, major respect to what you've accomplished as someone who's over 40, busy family, successful business, still practicing what they preach and progressing in the world of calisthenics, handstands and flexibility. I feel that if people follow your work, they're in good hands. Where can they find out more about your stuff? So I'm um, on YouTube. So just Paul Twyman on YouTube. Uh, and then Instagram, uh, Paul TA upside down. So underscore upside down. And then I have my website, uh, paultwyman.com.au. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Cheers for the wisdom. Cool. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation, leave a rating on the Fitness FAQs podcast to support the show. See you next episode.